Welcome to What Is It About the Weather, a weekly podcast where we explore the many ways in which weather intertwines itself into our lives. I'm your host, Mark Jelinek, and this week we're going to try and determine if weather was the reason for World War II, or at least prompted World War II. Let you think about that for a moment. We'll come back to it. Now, any episode where I'm doing some proper names in my non-native tongue, I'm going to mess them up. And I figured what a great place to start than to talk about the hurricane that blew through my area this past week. And there was a lot of chatter on Twitter about how to say, and I'll, you know, we'll spell it, I-S-A-I-A-S. Now, Clearly not a common English name, but in the Atlantic Basin, we have a mix, generally, of English and Latin or Spanish words that go into the names. And so, you know, there were a few good pronunciations out there. And there were a lot of also people frustrated that people weren't even taking the time to try to say it right. But it's it's a word, and as you guys know, I've spent some time living in a country where Spanish was the native tongue. And one of the reasons I probably was not better at it is there's always sounds or letters that come together that are difficult at times. Got lots of practice. It's fine. So I'm going to try it here and we'll see how bad I do it. It's e sa isis e and it's the Spanish word for Isaiah. So, it, you know, it's a name translation. And we don't see that often as much. You do, this is probably a biblical reference. But it was very common in, in Chile that no one, you know, when I grew up taking Spanish in high school, people would change the word from, you know, Mark. We did, everybody did their Spanish name, right? But when I was in Chile, no one wanted to do that. They just wanted to say your name as it was, your true given name. But this is one that's a little tricky to say because it's got a combination of vowels in there that can be a little difficult at times. And so you kind of have to know where to break the syllables. And so if you don't know, you might end up with more of an I sound to it. And I understand why people are doing that. And that's why I didn't get too bent out of shape with it. I mean, I, people were saying, don't be lazy. But I, I kind of got it. I understood where people were getting there. But it's e sa e sis e sa And I'm probably even messing it up. But it's something along those lines. Any case, blew through here as a tropical storm by the time it got to me. And as you can imagine, I was watching the construction site close to me to see what they were going to do in the morning of. They were still working, but around lunchtime, they shut down the site. And we did have some pretty strong winds. The airport that's near me had sustained winds of about 40 miles an hour and gust up to close to 60. So, you know, we were in that range. The benefit from my building we're a little protected, The at least the directions the wind was coming from. I was a little concerned with some trees on the street, might get some limbs down. Where I was, not a problem, but there were a lot of areas around me that lost power. And I was out a couple days later getting a New Jersey driver's license, of all things. Lots of detours I had to take because they were still cleaning up debris. People were still getting power back. So a lot of, a lot of impacts that you would expect from strong winds. But overall, uh, I think the damage was limited in that regard. You know, power outages, 
trees down, all the things that come with that, of course. But thankfully, not a lot of flooding. Uh, the rain bands were not particularly strong in my area, of course. There were some areas that saw more than that. But it was, an, you know, with me, I kind of was glad to see it come through. It's yet another tropical cyclone I can now put down on my list of having been through. And generally speaking, you know, the center of the eye of that storm came right over my head. So I'll check that off as yet another place I was. And keep in mind, this is very near where Sandy made landfall which has had much more devastating impacts. And so for this area, they've seen much worse. In follow-up to that, I saw an email that there was a book that was launched that discusses 500 years of hurricanes and how they've shaped U.S. history. All right, so I'm pointing that out because we're getting into a weather and history podcast. And I came across that, thought you might be interested. If hurricanes are your thing, one of the things... I guess that's interesting about hurricanes is because they're kind of these multi-day events, but very well tracked, that quite often the history around them is very well documented, and you can get a lot of information and stories that go along with them. I don't know. We'll see if it's an interesting read. I haven't looked at it yet, but maybe we'll read it together, and I'll let you know if I get a chance to read it and what my thoughts are. It's the type of thing I think I would enjoy, but... It's also about finding the time and taking the effort to read through it. All right, let's get back to that main story. You guys know I like doing these history and weather influences on history episodes. And picking these episodes, you tend to find certain things that influence. The topics that are available, at least where they're well-documented, in some cases, it's about, you know, where strategic battles and wars were won and lost. You know, the very first episode we did was about D-Day, but we've done things about the Spanish Armada and the kamikaze winds in Japan and even the Battle of Long Island. So we've got these scenarios that lend themselves well to, again, kind of like hurricanes or tropical cyclones, having the weather being well documented where there was a, a real influence. The other spectrum tends to be these events that are very spectacular. The space shuttle disaster, the Hindenburg disaster, you know, to kind of make note of the more recent episode we did. However, generally speaking, when you think about historic events, you want to back off and go broad category. Okay, what, what's going to matter? And, you know, some metrics might be cost. And you could think of about a Hurricane Katrina as being an example of that. Certainly, it impacted that region. And we even did the Galveston storm as kind of a localized impact. And Katrina would be another. Sometimes it can be a little harder to make a larger scale connection. But for some people, their history was changed, no doubt. And you can extrapolate things into a larger sense. But death is going to be another one of those things that drives that metric. The other challenge that we run into, when I did the episode about you know, the great European plague, we ran into this comparison between weather and climate. Now, people always ask me, what, what's the difference between weather and climate? Okay, so the best way I know to simplify that is Climate is anticipated, 
weather is actual. Climate is the baseline of what weather has historically been like in a given location. And it might be for a season. It could even be for a month, whatever it is. And those can be temperatures or precipitation normals, or even generally, you know, the way winds flow at certain times of the year. But weather is going to be really what happened instead of what did I expect to happen? Some people also do it with time scale. Some people say, well, climate's more of a seasonal thing and weather is, you know, maybe a few days or part of a day to a week. But I really like the, you know, anticipated versus actual because that's how it plays out when we do research in the field. I've also always had this challenge of weather versus lack of weather. So when you go and look at some of the most devastating natural disasters. A lot of them are famines. And certainly famines are contributed to by heat and quite often lack of rain. You know, it's just what I call lack of weather. But they tend to be more pronounced in longer time scales. So we get into this scenario where it can be a little difficult to attribute direct things or Talking about it from a weather perspective can be a little difficult because the write-ups about the weather component of it are just very basic. There was a drought. That's all people got to say. So yeah, it can be devastating. You know, the Dust Bowls in America being an example of that. There's been great famines in many areas of the world. You know, great famines. And I even looked at one that had to do with, with China when it was going through its cultural revolution phase. But pinpointing the exact influences, we get into that a little more nebulous range. That said, I just I don't find it as interesting from a weather perspective. It's tricky. The topic also has to be narrow enough to capture in an episode, and famines tend not to lend themselves well to that, or multi-year events tend not to lend themselves to that. So using all these criterias, I came up with, you know, going into natural disaster sort of thing. And many events were happening in East Asia, particularly in China. But as I mentioned, the one about the famine didn't, it just didn't draw me in. And I didn't want to also get into, you know, when you get into geopolitical stuff that's too much that way, it can be, you know, I'm not well-versed enough to speak to it or capture all that in a single episode. But there was one that stood out at the top of the list, and it actually had more deaths of non-famine. So they, you know, when you go into Wikipedia, for example, and you look at these lists, they tend to have certain types of groupings of natural disasters. They might be you know, earthquakes or volcanoes, which are certainly not a weather sort of thing. But they also put famines and epidemics in their own category and then can group other things together. But one that stood out was a flood that happened in 1931. And here's where we're going to start getting into names again. Only got a few of them. So it was a combination of rivers that had challenges, particularly in the central area of China, what I would call still eastern China, but central eastern China, that 
was not contained just to that. The Yellow River, which is in the more northern part of the country, also had flooding that year. But the Yangtze and the Huai were the two main rivers that saw just astronomical flooding. Now, let's set the stage. We talk about seasons, climates, that sort of thing. One thing that tends, you may have heard the name before, monsoon. And if you don't know what a monsoon is, well, generally speaking, it's a time of year where things kind of reverse course. So you may have wind flows in a certain direction and they change other direction. It's also often associated with heightened times of precipitation for given regions. India is a well-known monsoon. The southwestern U.S. has one, not quite as dominant. But East Asia also has one that's around the time of the Indian monsoon. It's a little later in the year, tends to happen, moves out of the tropics and more into the, you know, the temperate or the moderate range in terms of the way the planet sets up, but over the summertime period. So starts in June, the further north you get, it shifts to July and August. That area of East Asia is used to rain that time of year. It's very common sometimes called the East Asian rainy season, not particularly the monsoon season. But that setup is is normal. However, as with all things, when we talk about weather and climate, we have deviations from that climate, right? The weather is different than what's anticipated. And in that region, so sometimes monsoons are set up and we have drier years or wetter years. And these can be influenced by a lot of things like El Nino's and and other patterns going on around the globe. So the two rainy seasons prior to 1931 had been particularly dry. Yet that winter, that winter in 1930 into 31, they had had an exceptional amount of snowfall. So first you start off with, with really dry soil, hardened soil. Then you throw on top of it a bunch of snow. Spring comes around, starts melting. Now, some of that will work its way into the ground, and over time, it will soften the ground and loosen up that hardened soil from the drought, but a lot of it will also start to flow downstream. Much more runoff than you might have had otherwise. Interestingly enough, this appeared to be an El Nino year, which for people in the western U.S., they think certain things El Nino or La Nina, and it may be a completely different influence depending where you are in in the world. There had also been a higher than normal amount of tropical cyclones in that July-August time frame. China usually gets a couple landfalls a year. In this year, I think it was, it, the history's not as well documented here as it is in some of the other basins, particularly the Atlantic Basin. But I saw numbers between seven and nine. It depends on how you classify things and what time frame you decide to use. But no matter how you slice it, it's somewhere between three and four times the amount of normal tropical cyclone activity for this region. The end result was probably on the order of somewhere between 1.5 to 2 times the normal amount of rain in that region. Now you're thinking to yourself, well, that in and of itself may not have caused the a big flood, right? And the reality is, no, the rain itself probably didn't. But when you start talking about this combination of being particularly dry, heavy snows that were melting, followed by all these tropical cyclones. It's a culmination of too many things at once. 
And if those tropical cyclones are back-to-back versus spread out, if you get two times the normal amount of rain in a season, but you get it all in a week's period of time, it doesn't matter. You know, if, if you're used to getting it over three months and it has time to dissipate naturally, it's not going to be as big a deal. But the long and the short of it is all this happened. And along the Yangtze River, there are a variety of lakes. And a thing that I learned about, I didn't realize how much China used dikes to create lakes in different parts of the country. You know, I, mean, I always think of the Netherlands, right, as being the home of of common use of that. But there was one in a town called Gaiyao that gave way one night suddenly. And in that flood alone, it's estimated 150,000 people lost their lives. All right. And the peak of the river that happened in a city that's now known as Wuhan, which is a name that many of us will have heard recently. It peaked approximately 16 meters or 53 feet above flood stage. And that happened in August. All right. So if you can imagine, let's put some perspectives on this. So between where dikes failed and then, you know, just lands generally being inundated that were natural farmlands, Something on the order of, of combining, and, and I can give different things, uh, you know, those in the southwestern U.S. take either Arizona or New Mexico and flood it. Those in the northeastern U.S. take, I don't know, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, I think, roughly that, that space. And I'm not talking the city of New York, I'm talking the state of. Flood it. Those that live in Europe take, take England and half of Scotland and flood it. And that's how much land was inundated with floodwaters from this flood event. Many of the parcels of land, as I mentioned, were were farmland, but cities were devastated as well. And the floodwaters in some areas stayed there until November timeframe. And it's like one of the things of, you know, once the water's there, how do you get rid of it? May not be easy. So from the floods itself, it's estimated that approximately 625,000 people lost their lives. With all these numbers, the estimates vary tremendously, somewhere between 5, 650, but some accurate recent counts show it around 625. And depending on if you use the Yellow River floods in combination with that, it's estimated that once you then, right, you get through that initial flood problem, that crops were lost and secondary crops. It's not uncommon, right? For, for farmers to have an initial crop, harvest it and plant a secondary crop. The timing of the event made that impossible. So we had famine set in. You had the initial diseases that come with water, you know, of of the flood. So dysentery, typhoid, cholera. Then you had so many people crammed together and measles and smallpox kicked in. And then you had malaria from the standing water. In the end, if you add all that up, it's estimated that somewhere around 4 million people lost their lives. 4 million people. If you pick just the one river, it's closer to about 2 million. But somewhere in that 2 million to 4 million range, it's a significant amount of people. 40% of the people 
in the areas had to be evacuated or lost their homes, or you know, at least for a period of time. In a broad sense, it's estimated that roughly 50 million people were impacted directly by these floods. So at the time, that would be about 2 to 2.5% of the world's population, of the world's population at the time. And somewhere on the order of 10% of China's population at the time. Pretty incredible numbers. The hard part, though, is, well, what's the real impact? How do we know? You know, how do you connect it to history? And that was the thing that I struggled with in this episode, was where is that connection? You know, first I start looking at, well, what, what was the cause? What were, you know, why didn't, why hadn't I never heard about this? Because this is a flood that's not well known outside the region, even where it happened. And interestingly, it has a lot to do with little things like China's own geopolitical internal things going on at the time. A lot of printing presses were flooded. All right. So interesting things like that. But as I said, it it was tricky that what probably caused the floods in the end was a combination of nature. So all these weather events coming together. And no, it was not a single weather event. It was a collective onslaught of many weather events that contributed to it. But also in these areas that were dependent on the dikes to hold up the river, where they had not either been well-maintained or it just became too much and they gave way. And there was even talk that a couple years earlier, the Dragon King's temple had been destroyed and it was the Dragon King coming to take his revenge. Now, you know, most people have discounted that, moved on. But you, as with all things with disasters, you, you often find a, a supernatural influence or wanting to attribute it to a, a grander power. So no matter how you slice it, when you start talking about that many people being impacted by it, but that many people killed. I mean, again, over 2% of the world's population at the time killed by these floods. It's hard to say it didn't impact history, but I, I struggled again and again to say, where's the connection? Where is it something I can really attribute it to? And then I ran across something very interesting. So like I said, the peak of the floodwaters happened in August. And while it had been contained mostly in central China, it wasn't just in central, both northern China and central China had impacts from these floodwaters. And on September 18th of that year, Japan would invade Manchuria. For those that don't know, this is the far northern section. I mean, the definition of what that region is has certainly changed over time. Far northern section, northeast section along the coast, near where Korea is, of China. Now, Japan had already been making incursions in other areas, was already in control of Korea. But like other countries in the West, was in this imperial expansion phase. You know, many of the European countries had done it across the continent of Africa, 
certainly the U.S. was doing its own expansion during that time frame. Trying to, it was the way of creating a power position around the globe at the time. It was, just, it was considered what was the norm. Kind of grab and expand. Increase your sphere of influence. So many people, when they talk about World War II, think about and use the date traditionally of when Germany invaded Poland, 1939, as the start of World War II. That's not a world war. That's a European conflict. When you think about it being a world war, you think about the U.S. and and Japan's entry into this war. So how did that happen and why did it happen? Well, as I mentioned, Japan had been acting like many Western cultures at the time that were doing this expansion and had expanded into Korea, had expanded into China, and wanted to make its position of power well-known in the region. And so it's hard to say it's a world war if you don't have that influence of the whole Pacific Ocean being involved to some degree. And there's debates. There was a formal war that started in 37 that's considered a more broad-scale invasion effort by Japan in, in the region, into China and neighboring countries. But 1931 is still marked as kind of the first date when Japan really said, we're going for this, and made that first step by invading Manchuria. So by some historians' records, the starting point of World War II was actually that date, September 18, 1931. Now, the real question that I don't have the answers to, but that I'm hypothesizing here, is the success of that Japanese invasion may have very well been attributed to a country that was trying to recover and deal with devastating losses from the floods that had just peaked the month before. So will we ever know for sure? Probably not. Was I the first person to make that attribution? No. But sometimes it's hard to make the direct connection. But it's clear that China was weakened internally by the magnitude of a weather-driven natural disaster. And that certainly provided opportunistic background state for Japan to be successful in the invasion that they did. I don't know. Let me know what you think. I found it interesting history kind of episode for me. I always enjoy digging these episodes and I could go on forever and ever and ever. So while we talked about D-Day certainly being an influential date, if you will, in bringing World War II to an end and the role weather played there, it's very possible, it's very possible that the start of World War II was also driven by weather events. All right, I'm going to close out with an interesting thought about all this. We often talk about the difference, and maybe maybe you don't. Maybe you never think about the difference between fact and truth. So a fact is something that's provable. And a truth is something that incorporates more than that. It incorporates our beliefs, our perceptions. What we think of as truth isn't always provable. 
but it may very well decide exactly how we go about life making decisions. And that's why often you will hear people say that someone's truth, their truth is different than my truth. And that can be true, <laughs> to use another thing. Two people can have the same truths that seem to overlap, but might have different resulting impacts in how people make decisions and go about life. And a simple mathematical way to think about it is common expression, one plus one equals two, right? It's a fact. It's provable. Yet the flip side of that, two equals one plus one. Well, that's true. That's true. But two equals also equals one times two. Two also equals six divided by three. So it's not a one-to-one ratio. So next time when you hear people talking about facts and truths, just know which one you're dealing with. All right. Hope you enjoyed this step into history and weather's influences. As always, if you want to reach the podcast, what is it about the weather at gmail.com. Until next time, whether you're thinking about history or the world going on around you, don't ever forget there's much more to weather than the weather itself.